Bunker himself had been, uh, you know, he worked with the Red Cross. He was an American businessman and diplomat, ambassador to South Vietnam from 67 to 73, perhaps best known for being a hawk on Vietnam and Southeast Asia in the 1960s and 1970s. So he's a guy who was, you know, on a, 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 in the dullest circle of influential establishment Americans. Now, the way that this is set up, it brings forward the expiration date for Dutch control. Uh, and this meant that the Dutch were not able to take the deposit out of Freeport hands at the last minute. So there was a lease that went for the what would become the Freeport mine, you know, the, free, the, uh, the Grassberg mine. Uh, late you know decades later with all that gold there was a lease that had been signed and it would have expired uh if the dutch had their way it would have expired while the dutch still had control over it and then they could have uh re restructured that whole deal and re retained control over it but because of the way this is set up that's not going to happen and so this is a way for dulles rockefeller aligned forces to make sure that this played out in the way that they wanted with the uh, West Papuan sovereignty issue decided, uh, not in favor of the Dutch, but in favor ostensibly of Indonesia, but really it makes Indonesia even more of an inviting target for regime change because everything else is all set into place in terms of what the Indonesian state really is and their territory is. But now you're going to have, uh, if you can just somehow take control of the whole country, then you will have a windfall like nothing else in history. And that's the position that Alan Dulles and company are in. This the is... last people to ask about the lease were the Nazis. So <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. The Nazis had designers on it. The Japanese did, but they didn't even really know the full extent of what was over there. Just given all the people that were after that lease specifically, I think this is like one of the most touch and go points. And for Dulles to pull this off kind of with the subtlety that he does, obviously it gets called his masterpiece uh, by Fletcher Prouty, but like this is really one of his most, you know, sort of clutch moves to just pull this off last second, right? As they, as Lunds and company could have kind of pulled it out from under him. Not like Bunker, it wasn't just like friends with him, but he like Sullivan and Cromwell got him his appointment in Argentina as ambassador He'd uh, he'd worked in um, in Cuba like sugar um, under like what was Freeport, which obviously comes up again. So I mean, he just uh, to be a neutral mediator who just so happens to be like close with Alan Dulles is, I mean, it, yeah. he just there's so many points where he makes this hat like is able to sort of corral it where exactly where he wants it to go. I wish he had talked more about this guy because looking at his track record, like he starts out as the ambassador to Argentina in the early fifties. Uh, <laughs> and then he's ambassador to, to Italy, India, the OAS. He's like a representative for the OAS. And then like in the middle at like the high point of the Vietnam war, he's like the ambassador to South Vietnam. So like, I think he not, not intentionally, but kind of understates just how uh, capable this guy was in his own right of pulling some strings and, and keeping some secrets. You know, he was party to the dirty tricks for a long time. Well, and I, he is connected to the U S establishment and the pinnacle of corporate power. And as a result is networked in with people like Alan Dulles, but also these other people in the establishment. It's not just like Dulles himself. It's that these people are, um, 
all they all know each other. You know, the Kennedy administration itself, he had dozens of people who had worked for the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Because if you're going to be putting together people who have experience in government and diplomacy, uh, these are institutions that have, where the, the corporate world has had a big influence going back decades and decades. For the Ivy Leagues as well, if you're going to get people from that are connected to the Ivy Leagues con- and connected to bastions of like U.S. intellectualism, they're all intertwined with the same kind of corporate establishment. So the organizations that bestow prestige and credentials on people are are very bourgeois in America. And so they're connected to the same forces that Dulles works for. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be like Dulles as clear cut as it is with this bunker case uh, where that's a guy who is a who's close personally close to Dulles and was asked to be his deputy. But just people who would be tied into the Rockefeller, different, you know, Standard Oil, Rockefeller Foundation, uh, all of these entities are, they're, they're very networked. And you have David Rockefeller's Rolodex or whatever, or Alan Dulles's, yeah. you're talking about very similar circles with, who are people who are men of sound judgment and respectable. And what this means is ultimately they know how to get along, go along to get along, and they share the objectives and mindset of the of the establishment and uh so this is the way that this kind of influence operates and you, you see it you see it here uh, even kennedy kennedy couldn't possibly get rid of all of that influence in his own administration it's just a huge it was it would have been a, a huge challenge dulles is 11 or something i don't know something stupid like that <laughs> yeah that's that's uh, i mean who knows how many people that were really in on this whole thing i mean it could have been as simple as Dulles, just sort of Dulles or other people that this guy was friends with, John McCloy, these type of characters, just having, and the president himself, having conversations about, hey, you know, shade things this way. Let's let's not emphasize this point during negotiations and discussions about this, but just know that this is the outcome we really need. I mean, there's all sorts of ways these things can be done, and yeah. who knows how witting he was of everything. It can't all have been that clinical, though. Like, I... I sometimes have to stop myself and be like, this man had to have been at least a little bit capable of like charming people and having a friendly conversation and like, you know, putting, putting on airs, which is not really a side of Alan Dulles. That's like discussed much in history, but it's, you can't, you also can't like reduce it to just like a billionaire. We kind of had to, I'm not saying you're doing that. It's just like, no, he had people skills for sure. And that would have been a part of it. And then, you know, you like you, you have people skills, but you're also somebody that people know knows a lot of other people and everybody has every incentive to try to be friendly with you. And so Dulles can just know, try to accumulate as many connections and see who he can get to do what he needs done whenever. And so this is just this is the yeah. way that it works in these in these circles. I'd love now, like a psychobiography to be written, like the way that people write about Nixon now, where they want to delve into his psyche and see what makes him tick. Like, I want that type of writing about Alan Dulles. There's not enough there. For, I mean, I don't think that they're ever going to surpass. I would be interesting to know more about him, but I think that there's they're not going to surpass David Talbot's book on him because yeah. he's a guy who really kept a lot of it, a lot of things hidden, and so you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why his wife and mistress both called him the shark. <laughs> okay, so JFK with this, the die is cast with uh, Westerian, and now JFK needs to have a decent policy for Indonesia going forward. 
And so he works to this end. Uh, he comes up with a plan of action, which is uh, has a number of elements to it. Civic action is a part of it. This is something that Lansdale and others had created, had sort of uh, started in places like the Philippines and in Vietnam. They were attempting this. And it involved trying to win the population over. It later turns into like things you associate with like Operation Phoenix. But for a time, this was considered like a good plan for people who were thinking about political economy and developing in the, in the formerly colonized world. It's a way to have the government and the military in particular become involved with uh, things related to governance and establishing institutions post-colonially. Also, military aid. So military aid is a part of this. If you're going to create an institution in society that's capable of actually uh, creating, uh, producing administrative competence, what's it going to be? Well, they had decided on things like the military. So people like Walt Rostow, who was uh, an academic, but is also in, a super establishment guy, anti-communist guy, but was in the Kennedy administration. They come up with this um, theory of development modernization theory they called it and this was the military was seen as a, the best as the as the institution best suited to create this in post-colonial societies uh, money for economic stabilization so ways to try to stabilize the indonesian economy uh in order to make sure that they're able to not have balance of payments crises and feed themselves and so on uh increased diplomacy to try to sort things out between the u.s other actors in the region, Soviet Union, uh, dealing with the Dutch to the extent that they still have presence there. Like all of these things were part of how, parts of how Kennedy wanted to engage Indonesia and shape their development going forward uh, in, t- in ways that would be beneficial for the U.S. and the Cold War and the world in general. And the idea is, if you're Kennedy and your people around Kennedy, that you want Sukarno to be wooed over to the American side. You don't want him hanging out with these unsavory communists like Khrushchev here. And uh, you see him here with Shea. Of course, you know, Dulles wouldn't, John Foster Dulles or Alan Dulles would not like to see this. They don't like these guys. But it's useful if you want to say, look, look at how he's kind of a little communist curious in some way. Look at him hanging out with these guys. So this would be a way to, uh, you know, uh, vilify him if you need to. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. empire. 